you the honor, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Nice to see everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name is Rick Beach. I'm um, on temporary staff here at the church. I was scheduled to speak last week, but a toe infection had other intentions, and um, Bill was very gracious to step in on very very short notice and and take that assignment. And now Woody's been called away because of Sarah's medical conditions. And so I'm stepping in uh, under some short notice. And so uh, I'm thankful to be here. And we're going to be looking uh, at what Jesus says about discipleship and, and the price and the cost of discipleship. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord. For all that you give us, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we look into the scriptures of what your son Jesus has said about discipleship, Lord, pierce our hearts. Show us what you'd have us to know about what you want us to do. We love you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The experts say that there are 6.8 billion people in the world today. Those same experts say that about one-third of those people are Christian. I don't know, in my mind that's maybe a little high, but for the sake of discussion, we'll accept that. That then means that in the world there are 4.5 billion people that don't know Christ. Those same experts also say that there are in any given day in the world today 26,000 children 26,000 children die of starvation or a preventable disease. Here in the Lahontan Valley, the Lahontan Valley has about 27,000 people. If we apply the percentage that the experts use on the world, that means somewhere around eight or 9,000 people are, are Christians in the valley. And I, I don't know, that seems a little high. One day, uh, a few months ago, I took the Fallon phone book out and looked in the yellow pages, counted all of the evangelical churches in Fallon, came up with 23. Now just parenthetically, an evangelical church is like Parkside. It has certain core doctrines that they believe are non-negotiable and that they will not accept any deviance from. And those are things like what John taught this morning in Sunday School, the verbal and plenary inspiration of the Bible, the existence of the triune God of the Bible, Jesus as the Son of God, and salvation by faith, by grace, in Christ alone, and his ultimate return. Churches, 23 churches in this valley that teach those doctrines. I, I estimated their membership. 
And at the most, I came up with maybe 2,000 people. So maybe we'll add 500 more and make it 2,500. 27,000 people in the Lahontan Valley. That means that there are over 24,000 in this valley that don't know Christ. 4.5 billion in the world. These numbers scream out to us as disciples of Christ to be about His business of saving souls. As God purposes in this world to reconcile man to Himself, our part in that process is absolutely paramount. So I want to look at some scriptures that have to do with us being disciples for those that are Christians. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. We're going to see that <clears throat> Jesus says some very radical things in the Gospels. In this particular case, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says things that, that are, be, are virtually beyond convicting. They're, they're just almost devastating in the life of a, of a Christian. If that Christian, you or I, in any way is thinking as the world thinks. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, <clears throat> an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whosoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whosoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In these verses, Jesus is describing a discipleship that is beyond radical. He says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person who slaps you on your right cheek. Turn and show him, give him the other. Verse 40 says, If anyone wants to sue you, let them. Give them your shirt and, and give them your coat also. In verse 41, he says, Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The context of that is, is a military application. In this culture, a Roman soldier could come up to a townsperson and say, I need help carrying my backpack to the naval air station. And that townsperson was obligated to help them. You had to carry the pack. 
And so this military person's asking for him to carry it a mile. Jesus says, do that and even more. Double it. In verse 43, Christ says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Talk about radical. Jesus expects us to love our enemies, to love those who, who, who try to hurt us, and, and we're, to, we're to pray for them, those who persecute us. Of, of all that Christ says, for me, this is the most indicting. This is the, the one that really comes home. Because there have been times when I'd had enemies, and believe me, I didn't love them. I thought of ways to hurt them or to make life not good for them. And Christ said, you can't do that. You, you, you must live to a much higher standard if you're going to be my disciple. This same Jesus, when he was talking about murder, speaking of the Old Testament, the law, where it says, thou shalt not murder, Jesus says, but I say to you, if any of you get angry at another, just get angry at someone else. You have broken the law. You have murdered them. Oh, those are tough words. Those are tough words. He says in Luke chapter 12, we won't turn to it. He says, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before the Father. And then he says, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before the Father. That verse in Luke chapter 12 has been applied, generally speaking, by the evangelical church to mean that when a person becomes a Christian, they should want to be baptized eventually, and that is true, and that that baptism is an outward showing of what they have done spiritually by trusting Christ, which is also true. But it has been taught that that's what confession means. Uh, I've often been haunted by these words. Uh, I'm not sure it's limited just to baptism. So I did a little investigating with the books the church has. And I've, I found some commentators that didn't care to comment at all about it. And others gave that interpretation I just gave you, that it's baptism, that it's an outward showing of what's been done inwardly. But I did find a couple commentators who said it's beyond that. It's, it's whether or not we're willing in the context of where we go, in the marketplace, in our lives, are we willing to tell others about Christ? Are we willing to confess Christ? And this particular commentator said, what the verse says is true. If you'll tell people about Jesus, Jesus will tell the Father about you. But if you're unwilling to tell people about Christ in your sphere of influence, and this commentator said, Jesus is not going to tell the Father about you. I don't know the theological implications of that. I'm not going to go beyond that. I'm just telling you what the commentator said. A credible commentator. For those who are interest, interested in the Scottish uh, theologian by the name of McLaren. 
Those are heavy words. If you'll confess me before man, I'll confess you before the Father. If, if you won't, I won't. Jesus also said in Matthew 18, in answer to the question, how many times should I forgive someone? And Jesus answered back and said, you should forgive 70 times 7. You should forgive in an unending fashion. That means if someone abuses you and abuses you and abuses you, you are to forgive after each episode. These are super radical words. And with the numbers that I said earlier and what Jesus says here, it demands, it absolutely compels us to, to, to consider, to, to say, what am I doing about the 4.5 billion in the world? What am I doing about the 24,000 people in the Lahontan Valley, the people that live next to you and live next to you and down the road from you? 24,000 people don't know Christ in this valley. There's, there's, there is urgency here. Let's turn, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 9. This will be our main verse, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Jesus, or this is an instance where Jesus is questioned by those who are following him. Verse 57, And they were going along the road. Someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Christ is saying to these three men the cost of discipleship. He says to the first man who says, I'll follow you. He's saying, wait a minute. Wait. You better consider the cost. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But I have no home. If you follow me, you're not going to live a life of security. You aren't going to live a life of comfort. The other man says, the second man, Well, Lord, I'll follow you. I just, I just got some business to take care of. My dad's sick. Or my dad's dead. It's, theologians don't know if he's deathly sick or dead. But he's got to go home and bury his father. That's a pretty reasonable request, isn't it? Just, just give me a few days. I'll follow you. Please. 
And Jesus doesn't say yes. He says, says, let let the people who don't have living water, let the dead bury the dead. You go preach the kingdom of God. There's a sense of urgency in the in these verses, especially this verse. There's a sense of com- of compelling, but but of urgency. This guy can't even go home and bury his dad. Jesus says, "I want you out preaching the kingdom of God." And then he says something similar to the third guy. He he just wants to go home and say goodbye to his folks. He wants to go by, go home and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave with this guy. And Jesus says, no. I think Jesus knew the affections that, that family can, can give. I think that Christ was demanding in this man full, uh, unfettered devotion to, to himself. And that he knew if the man went home to say goodbye to his folks... And the family, the family's going to go, well, well who, who, who's this you're following? And, 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 and how, do you tend to, uh, how do you intend to pay for, for food? And, um, you know, what if you get sick? Or, uh, well, you know, you, you, you need a wife. How are you going to find a wife following this guy? Jesus knew that those devotions to family, those allegiances... Would 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 prove um, uh, well could prove deadly to this man and he said no said once you've put your hand to the plow don't look back and if you do you aren't fit you aren't fit for the kingdom of God these are these are these are absolutely radical indicting statements to the Christian in the 21st century they, these truly are they present to us an urgency. An urgency to get out and to preach the gospel. Where's the urgency? He wouldn't even let the guy go back and bury his father. The issue is that what we're to do is we are commanded, Matthew 28, to make disciples, to preach the kingdom of God. That is the main thing. Many evangelical churches do everything but that. They, they're great in praying, and they've got tons of Bible studies, and folks are faithful to worship. All of these things are wonderful, all of them wonderful, but they're not the main thing. They are not the main reason why you, Christian, exist, why your heart still beats, why you're not with Jesus. And what is it for? To preach the gospel, to preach the good news. John MacArthur says it this way. I ran across this article two or three months ago. He shared it with the elders. He said, many functions in the evangelical church, uh, like praying, like attending worship, like going to Bible studies or teaching Bible study, like going to fellowships or making dinners for potlucks and so forth, are all good good activities in and of themselves. But MacArthur says, uh, John MacArthur, I apologize, is a pastor in Southern California and a uh, high-profile theologian in the evangelical circles. He said all of these activities are just preparatory. They're just training. They're methods of training to, 
so that you're prepared to get in the game. And he analogizes it to an athletic event. And what's the, what's the point of the game? The point of the game is making disciples. But so many evangelicals and evangelical churches, they think the point of the game is the training. They go to practice, but they don't ever get in the game. And MacArthur says, that's wrong. It is wrong. And Jesus said to this man that just wanted to go bury his father, just go let me bury my father. He said, no, you go out and preach the kingdom of God. Some of you may say, well, uh, this idea of preaching the good news and and sharing Christ, I've never been trained. I've never gone to a Bible school uh, and I just don't know what to do. That, that's, that's why we hire people. That's why churches have church staff. That's their job. It's Woody's job. It's Bill's job. It's Dale's job. It's the Bible class teacher. It's John uh, Billick's job. That is a very common opinion today. Very common. But it is not biblical. There's no question that the Bible in Ephesians chapter 4 says that these people, these pastors, and these Bible teachers, and these elders are given. But they're not given to go out and do this for you. They're given to prepare you for it. They're given to equip you. And then you're to go out and you're to do the work of the ministry. That's what Ephesians 4, verses 11 through the end of the chapter say. That's our job. Others have stated it a little differently. They, they say, well, the problem in an evangelical church is that they're, they're consumers. There's just lots of consumers. Some analogize it to moviegoers. They say, when you go to the movie, you pay your ticket. The, the parallel analogy for the Christian is, pay your tithe. And you come in week in and week out and sit down and watch the show just as you would if you went to a movie. And when the show's over, you're very passive. You're not involved, very passive. And when the show's over, you get up, shake a few hands, pat a few backs, get ready to go to lunch. That's consumerism. And these these theologians say that is not at all the plan of God in the Bible. It certainly is not. Jesus calls us to be contributors. Folks, for years, for years, years I was just a consumer I knew better I did a lot of you know this Uh, you know my circumstance but I was a consumer then God one day about two years ago decided I just well everything's done in the sovereignty of God but things changed for Rick Beach I had a side effect of high blood sugars with diabetes. And that side effect was to basically attack the nerves in my body. And among other things, I had trouble walking. Some of you may have seen that. I had to use a cane sometimes. Often I'd be walking along and just fall down, be looking out horizontally, and pretty soon I'm looking vertically, having a clue what happened. It, it, it wasn't looking real good. Doctors didn't fully understand what was going on. But ultimately we found out 
God was gracious. God was merciful. And he brought me out of it largely. It took about six months. But during that time, I knew he was talking to me. I knew I was a consumer. And I knew it was wrong. And he, he was working me over, believe me. Just ask my family. But, but he wasn't done. He wasn't done. About four months later, I've come out of this problem to some degree, to a large degree. And God, one day I get called into the office where I've worked for 29 years. Fifteen minutes later, I'm walking out the door for the last time. They've just told me my position has been eliminated. Four months after going through a six-month medical ordeal. Again, all, all of it in the sovereignty of God. As I look back, I know God was talking to me. I know God was redirecting my life. And I'm very thankful for it. Truly, I am. Uh, If the truth be known, I'm glad. I truly am. There are others that have experienced things like this. I think of a fellow, some of you may know him. His his name's Tulian, which is a kind of a funny first name. Tulian Tavigian. He is the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. Some of you may know about that church. It used to be pastored by a pastor by the name of D. James Kennedy. Uh, D. James Kennedy is now with the Lord. But they were looking for a, a new pastor. And this young man, Tullian, was pastoring a church about eight miles down the road at a, at a church called New City Church in Margate, Florida. And they called him, had a vote, and he became the new pastor. The churches united. Everybody moved into the Coral Ridge facilities, and things were fine. And then some people became discontented. Christians at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. They didn't like the theology that Tulian was preaching. Now, his theology is good. It's orthodox, it's evangelical, but they didn't like it. They wanted life like it was with D. James Kennedy. Bless his heart, D. James Kennedy was preaching basically um, what I would call uh, evangelical conservative politics type of a gospel. He was calling Christians to participate in the political process to stop certain social ills, things that are necessary. But Tullian Tavigian decided that wasn't what he was going to preach. He was going to preach the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And these other things would take care of themselves as they took care of themselves. People didn't like it. And they forced him into a vote of whether or not he got to stay. Of course, during this period of time, all kinds of horrible things being mentioned in the papers in South Florida. But ultimately, he was successful. God was sovereign, and he came. He was voted to be able to stay as the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And three weeks later, his dad dies unexpectedly. Tullian says that 2009 was a tough year. A very difficult year, the toughest year of his life. But then he, he, in the same breath, he says, best year of my life. And how God has dealt with him and shown himself faithful. 
I know many of you have had experienced profound loss in the last year or two. All of these things, whether it be me, Tulian, or you, they all work after the counsel of His will and for His glory. Jesus, in these verses, Jesus is, is, is trying to get us to see that He wants our full heart's devotion and that He does not promise a comfortable life. Remember what He said to the guy who said, I'll follow you? He says, well, their foxes got holes. They've got homes. Birds have nests, but I have no place. If you follow me, it is not going to be easy. A lot of evangelical theologians say that the, the church in America is a little comfortable. It's a little used to, to, to comfort. Uh, we, we enjoy a wonderful building, uh, wonderful seats, wonderful stage. Um, one pastor, realizing this in Alabama, realizing that his people might be getting comfortable, might not be remembering their true calling, preach the good news. So he said about to change things, he and the elders. Now this is a large Southern Baptist church in Alabama. I'm guessing somewhere four to 6,000 people. It, it's got buildings worth millions, beautiful buildings. And he set about to make a change. So what they did, they took their platform and took all the decorations down. The stage, the platform, there's, I assume was huge to seat that many people. And they put those decorations in the closet. And then they went out and got more. They went out into the town. They didn't go to a Christian bookstore. They didn't go to a Christian mail order house. They went into town, but they didn't walk through the front door of the store for their decorations. They went down the alley. They went down the alley, and they pulled things out of the dumpsters of the businesses in their town. And they set them up on their platform to depict a slum in a third world country. This pastor wanted to make sure his people understood that the comforts that the American people enjoy, the comforts that the American Christian enjoys, is not indicative of many third world churches and third world Christians, that they deal in conditions a whole lot differently. And he wanted his people to see it week in and week out that the Christians throughout the world, they don't live like we live. They don't have the comforts that we have, but they love Jesus. They're a little like the guy that Jesus said, I don't have a home. If you come with me, it isn't going to be comfortable and it isn't going to be secure. The pastor said also that there are many people in his church that wish he wasn't the pastor, but he, he, he still is. I've been talking mainly to Christians. 
But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you can become a Christian. That if you understand and recognize what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, if you recognize that and understand it, you can be a Christian. You can go to heaven. It's recognizing your sinful condition. It's realizing that because of that sin, God condemns you to eternal separation from Him, but that you can have your penalty paid by Christ, by His death on the cross, by trusting in Him. And I hope if you are here and you don't know Jesus, that you will do that. Or that you'll ask someone that maybe you know, or if you don't know, I'll stay here till after the service if you'd like to come ask me about trusting Christ. Most important decision that you'll ever make in your life, nothing more important, the business of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that's what we're to do. That's what Jesus would have us to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffler wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a, it's a flagship book on the issue of discipleship. And this was a fellow who lived, uh, was a theologian in Germany during the Second World War, and he was basically murdered by the Third Reich. But in his book, he says, if you want to be a true disciple of Christ, you've got to come and you've got to die. You've got to give up your life. And you've got to have total allegiance and total devotion to Jesus. Christ himself gave a parable. This is recorded in Matthew 13. It's about a, a fellow just walking down the road, and he sees a treasure in a field. And he goes over and recognizes it as a treasure. And he kind of covers it up to hide it. And he goes into town, and he gets all of his assets, and he collects them up, and he sells them. He raises the cash, and he buys the land. His friends are saying, you're crazy. That land isn't worth anything. It's a poor piece of ground. But he knew what was there. He knew the treasure, and he was willing to give everything up for that treasure, sold all of his assets, paid it all for that treasure. This is clearly an allusion to Jesus. And the treasure that he is to be for us, that we would give up everything. We would give up our security and our comfort to follow him. I want to read a letter if, about a man who, who discovered that. Now this, this letter, you see me pulling out pages, uh, is, is, is lengthy, but bear with me. This is a man who has seen this, this, this treasure in Christ. It's a letter written to the pastor and elders of this same church who built a slum on their platform in Alabama. And this man says this, Dear Pastor and Church family, <clears throat> I assume based on what others have said about you and the faith family at Brook Hills that you are accustomed to receiving complimentary letters. I hope you will indulge me as I write to you from a different perspective. My letter could be considered more of a complaint or of a warning. It is intended to enlighten you as to how your radical actions and teachings related to the Word have been destroying my life and probably the lives of others like me. 
Let me explain. I was raised unchurched by loving parents who were perfectly content with their lives. The worldly perspective that I grew up with allowed me to seek the hypocrisy or to see the hypocrisy in the lives of a few church-going families to which I had been exposed. Thus, I grew into a worldly man and I found myself on the path to the American dream. This path, as far as I could see, did not go through or even near a church. I went to college, then grad school, married a beautiful woman, got a decent, respectable job, which allowed me to ultimately to buy a house, make maximum contributions to a 401k. My wife and I eventually had a family with two beautiful daughters and two dogs. I was living the middle-class version of the American dream. I was a kind, decent family man, grounded in the realities of this world, perfectly content to devote myself to working hard to provide the resources my family needed. And they were a 401k retirement plan, a 529 college savings plan, a general savings plan, and a vacation savings plan. I also worked to provide the necessities of life, such as a flat TV, a flat screen TV. Mm. I loved my family and loved spending time with them, but I was constantly distracted by the financial realities and needs of our lives. I looked to my balance statement as a sense of security. Like many good worldly men devoted to getting ahead in this world, I found joy when my 401k showed a profit. I also experienced pronounced periods of distress, disappointment, and anger when the 401k dropped or we had to take money out of the savings to pay bills. But I accepted these ups and downs as a reality of life. Overall, we were doing A-OK, until one day, my wife, who I thought loved me, told me she wanted to raise our daughters in a church. Up to this point in my life, I had avoided churches and the hypocritical people in them. I always felt uncomfortable around Christians because I did not know that the Bible, I did not know the Bible, and I assumed that they were looking down on me for that lack of knowledge. Now, in order to make my wife happy, I was going to have to... interact with Christians on their turf. I reluctantly agreed and added church to my list of dreaded weekend duties. We tried Brook Hills because my wife had heard good things about this church. We started attending last fall. That was a part of a process where your faith family has been progressively destroying my life. The word you served up that day was strong and pure. It had an immediate impact on me and left me wanting more. We started attending regularly on Sundays, but I wanted more. I started buying CDs of previous sermons and listening while driving to and from work. I started interacting with this faith family and saw that they were living the word you preached. This fueled my desire for more. I was becoming addicted and I started to develop a side effect known as faith. As my faith grew, I felt a greater need to fellowship with others. I was losing my grip on the realities of the world that I had had been my foundation for so many years. And then I came to Christ. I can't believe what the word did and my growing faith has done in my life over the last year. 
I used to avoid church altogether. Now we attend on Sundays. And we have joined a small group that meets for three hours on Wednesdays. At my neighbor's house, I used to avoid Christians that profess their faith, and now I have become one. I stopped saving for that flat-screen TV, which is okay because I don't have much time for TV anymore. I have reduced my 401k contributions and stopped looking at the quarterly statements. I've gone from trying to make and save as much money as I can to trying to give as much money away for the glory of Christ. What is wrong with me? It is lunacy. What have you done to me? The worldly man I was a year ago would not recognize the man I'm becoming. I was living the American dream, living in comfort, looking for security in a strong bottom line. Now I believe in, pray to, and seek security in a God I cannot see. I have found salvation in Christ whom I cannot see. I long for eternity in an unseen future creation. I now look for security in my faith. All of this would have sounded like foolishness to the man I was a year ago. Now the man I was a year ago and my worldly life are being destroyed. I want you and the faith family at Brook Hills to be aware of the role you have played in destroying that worldly life. I also feel the need to warn you. If you persist in the teaching and living out of the Word as you are doing currently, then you will likely have a similar impact in the lives of others like me. I hope you realize you may have to live with the knowledge of your actions and their effects on the lives of others for all of eternity. I will be there to remind you of what you have done. (laughs) Folks, this man saw what radical discipleship, total devotion to Christ really means. We can show the world that we care. The world in the Lahontan Valley need radical, Christ-loving, Christ-honoring Christians. The world in the Lahontan Valley need the gospel. And the world in the Lahontan Valley desperately need Jesus. 24,000 people without Christ. Let's pray. Father, your words are powerful and penetrating.